Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. We're here to talk about becoming invested. This is the Invested Podcast. This is the, the Invested Podcast. Yes. Which we think is a clever use of the term. <laughs> we invested. do. We are very proud of ourselves. Yeah, because you can become invested by having a commitment to something. You can become invested by actually purchasing stocks on the public market. So cool. Double entendre. (laughs) (laughs) You can be invested in your own future. Yeah. And you can learn education, which which is is the ed part. That's why we put the capital ED. Yeah. Because it's an investing education and we're really serious about it. You're going to learn how to invest on this podcast because we do it the way Warren Buffett has been teaching it for 50 years. And his partner, Charlie Munger, we think is one of the smartest guys about investing on the planet, who says that the main thing you have to do to be a good investor is you have to know something. That's what reduces the risk. And you have to wait. You have to be patient. You have to wait for a wonderful business to come along at a fair price. And that's going to happen with utmost certainty, Charlie says and Warren says, because that's what the stock market does. It goes from kind of an emotionally, irrationally exuberant where everything is super pricey and everyone knows everything's just going to keep going up forever. And then it drops to the other emotional state, which is a lot of fear. And everyone knows the stock market's a terrible place to put your money and it's going to go down forever. And what we want to do, of course, is wait with our cash until Mr. Market's afraid and scared and selling things cheap. And then we want to buy stuff. Very hard to do. Very hard to do. Because you're ready, you know? Like, you've put in the time. You've done the... Re- I, I'm saying you because I haven't done any of this stuff. But conceivably, coming. somebody puts in the time, puts in the research, and you're like, all right, I'm ready to go. Yeah. And then you can't find anything that's priced well. Which is why... Almost no fund managers will manage your money in this style of investing. It's why Warren Buffett runs Berkshire Hathaway instead of a hedge fund, because he got out of the hedge fund business in 1969 because it was difficult to keep investors happy um, with this style of investing. Very difficult to keep them happy. As a result, really, you can count on a couple of hands and feet the number of people actually do this in the real world. Um, the way Buffett does it, the way I do it, the way uh, we teach our students to do it. And that's because you can't control the capital. But you guys, you as a small investor have total control of the capital. You don't have the pressure, the institutional imperative to do something and be really smart that every hedge fund manager and every money manager and every advisor has that drives them to try to jump over six foot bars When Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are saying, just sit there and wait, don't do anything, and wait for a six-inch bar and jump over that one. So this style of investing is incredibly simple, incredibly simple, but incredibly hard for professionals to do. I am side-eyeing your incredibly simple Okay, maybe it's simple compared to other kinds of investing. I have no idea. Well, I think it's um, simple the way snowboarding is simple. I do not find this simple. Well, I... The way snowboarding is simple. The way riding a bike is simple. You know, the way learning Spanish is simple. Like it's really hard until it's easy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the process is very straightforward. How to learn how to snowboard. They teach new people every day out there in the winter. But it doesn't, I mean, it's very simple, but you have to go through it. Yeah. You have yeah. to go through the process. 
And of course, as they, you know, back when we all learned to snowboard, when you were a little tyke <laughs> and wanted to snowboard, and I was like, oh man, you sure you don't want to learn how to ski? And you were like, no, I just want to snowboard. I just want to snowboard. All the kids are snowboarding. And so, oh my gosh, we went out and tried it on our own. You remember that? No, what happened is we were in, I think, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and it was like the first year snowboarding had ever happened, and there was like some guy who you could get to teach you to snowboard, and I was like, I want to snowboard, and so we got like the guy. You weren't there. You didn't do it with me. I don't know. Maybe you were there, Um, (laughs) and I just remember the first thing he said to me was, it's so much easier to learn on a steeper slope. <laughs> so we're going to go up to the double blue slope. And I was like, oh, my God. And we went up to the double blue, and I just fell over and over and over and over and over for about six hours. And I remember the next day I could not move. Like I, I remember like I was on the couch trying to watch TV. I couldn't lift my arm to reach for the remote because oh, it hurt so badly. Brutal. So basically the point is nobody knew how to teach snowboarding. But then... Well, I have to, I have to bust your bubble up for a second because no. that was not the first year snowboarding had ever yes, been taught. Yes, no. Was. Snowboarding okay, had been Okay, maybe it was like the third time. year. No, we've been around a long time. Burton snowboards existed, so yes, it yes. had been around, but I don't think any, there was no like official well, they didn't know how snowboarding to teach instructor that you could get through the mountain. Right. It was like only That's some right. guy. So it was just at the beginning of where they were actually trying to teach it. Exactly. And I'll tell you, they didn't know how to teach it. But then by the time we did it together, which was like five years later or something, when we were in Jackson, then they knew how to teach it better. Well, what, you were like... How old were you when, you when we were in Jackson? You remember when we moved I there? I was uh, 15. You were 15 when we moved there? Yeah. Okay, so right then, first year. And I remember we went up on that lift in the, in the town. Um, in Snow King? Yeah, Snow King. Or maybe that was just me. <laughs> uh, whatever, Whoever it was, I had to crawl down the mountain. It was brutal. With the same basic principle being approached, which is, oh, yeah, it's a lot easier on a steep hill. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God! And so then the we point went, is, yeah, the point is instruction. Get and, somebody who knows how to teach. Exactly. <laughs> so and suddenly things get a lot easier. So we're we're forty three lessons into learning this stuff, and I'm starting to feel like I I don't know how to teach it at all. But, no, stop but it. in all fairness, we're we're just wandering around, following uh, your inclinations this way and that way, and mine as well, and. Um, I'll tell you, no, what, but this me, is the truth. Me, Nobody really teaches this anywhere. We're, we're really the only, only people out there that I know of that are trying to actually teach this in a systemized way. Well, let me give you some props on that. Oh, thanks. Because we've gone from on day, on podcast one, from me going, I don't really know why we're talking about this. <laughs> I have zero interest in it. Let's try this out. Maybe I'll get interested. And frankly, I'm pretty interested now. That's which is really good. Amazing in my mind. Like honestly, that's amazing to me. Well, I would say that um, it's humbling actually trying to teach this because it's <laughs> he very means to me. No, to me <laughs> because it's. I feel like it's a lot like te- trying to teach snowboarding. And once you know how to do it. It's, it just sort of happens. You just sort of turn your board and it goes down the hill. And you, you really have to break it down carefully to figure out what you're doing. And a lot of times when you break it down, you're not really doing what you think you're doing. Which is why often people who are very good at something naturally, who are talented in it naturally, 
are horrible teachers at that thing because they never had to go through the process of learning it step by step. It just came to them. Yeah. So they can't, and, and it came to them in a way that's innate and they cannot describe it to other people yeah. who don't have the same talent. Yep. And somebody who's a really good teacher is often somebody who had a really hard time learning that thing because they had to figure out every single step and struggle through it. And they thought about it and they know how to tell somebody else what they did. Well, you know, we, we do this class for three days that I teach once a month, about once a month, not every single month, but I try to do three days a month and just, we, we do the class and, and, um, I think it's getting better and better because of what we're doing here in this podcast. Are you really helping me try to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand better the issues that we go through when we're starting to learn this. And I think that, you know, what I'm about to talk about today, what we're going to kick around is really a, a place where we've got to learn to teach it better. And that is, how do you figure out the, the value of a business? What's, what's it really worth as a business? And we've, we've gone through a lot of stuff trying to have, have an understanding of this. And, <clears throat> you know, Charlie just sort of dances right over it. You know, are you capable of understanding? Does it have a moat? Is management good? And then you want to have it at a fair price, as if a fair price is something that is just obvious about a company. Right. I mean, when he says that, I mean, I think he's amazing, but um, he strikes me as somebody to whom it all came very easily. And well, he did not really have to think about it. Yeah, and by all accounts, you... Charlie's a genius. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. So the rest of us have to have to do this a little bit slower, and maybe there's not so many things we can figure out uh, the value of. But, you know, clearly he's right about the basics. You must be capable of understanding the business before you can figure out what it's worth. There's no way you can figure out what a car is worth unless you understand the basics of driving a car. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you, if, if you don't know, for example, that you need to turn it on, that the engine should sound a certain way, that, you know, this is the basics of driving the car. If you don't even know those things, figuring out whether you should buy this car for $100 or $10,000 is impossible. Well, and understanding the differences between cars and why a BMW costs what it does and a Ford Focus costs. Sure, what it which does. is a whole nother level, right? And, well, and then that be part of being capable of understanding? Sure, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, there are aspects of an automobile, if you're going to look at it, where you might want to get an expert opinion, you know? You might want to have somebody that's really good at engines take a look at it before mm -hmm. you buy it, or you want it certified or something like that. And I don't think it's all that different here. It's like, you know, if the car's under warranty, it's that's a whole different thing than if it isn't. You know, there's a lot of different things you can think about when you're buying a car. <clears throat> but once you've kind of learned how to do it, it's not that complex. Um, another way to think about this is you drive to work every day, and it's not this dangerous, horrible, scary thing. But when you don't know how to drive, as a kid, you're learning to drive. It's really scary. I mean, I remember you, you know, teaching you to drive and, you know, coming up to a stop sign. It's like, where do you start to put the brakes on? <laughs> you know, way back here, 300 yards, or do you put them on, you know, 10 feet or, you know, where does it, where does it happen? So I guess the point is that things we take for granted that are really pretty simple, um, which are pretty simple, can be learned by everyone. Every, everybody can learn to drive a car pretty much. That's kind of like investing. If you can figure out how to drive a car, you can figure out how to invest. It's just a matter of being taught properly. And that's where the, that's the rub, right? How do you learn this stuff properly? So we've been promising. I mean, I think investing is more complicated than driving a car. Let's just acknowledge that that's a fact. 
investing has a lot more factors involved in it and a lot more variables than driving a car, right? I'm thinking. You're thinking. I'm thinking. I'm okay. not so sure, actually, because we just take for granted so much of what goes on. You drive a car at 70 miles an hour. I mean, there's a lot going on there that you've forgotten that you don't have to remember. And I, I want to remind you of the four steps of mastery, which are, we've covered these, mm-hmm. which are first, you're unconsciously incompetent. So when you start to learn to drive a car, it's just so fun to sit on dad's lap and wiggle the wheel. And, you know, you're just having fun. You don't know anything. Then you decide to learn to drive the car as a kid and you become consciously incompetent. You realize you don't know how to keep the car between the two lines. You don't know when to stop it. You don't know when, how, to, how much gas to put on. All of those things have to be learned. And you do them, and it's very bumpy and rough, and stop and start and stop and start. And scary. The faster you go, the scarier it gets. And then you go to this state of conscious competence where you're a kid that understands how to drive the car, but you have to pay attention. And that's why you know, insurance rates are so high on 16, 17, 18-year-olds is because when they forget to pay attention, they can crash the car pretty easily because they're not paying attention unconsciously yet. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you become a master at driving the car, and you're sort of unconsciously competent. And you can literally go down the highway at 70 miles an hour. Um, and while you shouldn't do it, you you know, you can be doing other things. You're changing the radio, having a conversation, you know. Well, the difference between uh, those levels of competence is your level of experience. Yeah. And so that's what we're trying to do now by going through stuff like valuing a company by learning how to research is just developing a well of experience. Yeah, it is. And the other thing that really helps learning how to drive a car is to remember that we're not in a 1900 where it was a death-defying feat to learn how to drive a car, right? I mean, people didn't know how to do it. And and today, we have a real defined set of things you need to learn to drive a car. Plus, the car is much more sophisticated, and it helps a lot. And I would say that's kind of analogous to what's happened with doing this kind of investing since Warren Buffett's come on the scene over the last 50 years. He and Charlie have talked and taught a lot about how to properly do this sort of investing. And in the last 15 years, the internet has come on very, very uh, strongly as a tool set. It's a little bit akin to automating the process. You don't have to shift the gears. You don't have, you know, a lot of those things happen in the car now automatically. And that's what's going on on the internet. But you have to know still which tools to use and how to use them properly. So I wouldn't say it's to the point of automatic driving. You know, we're not there yet by any means and probably won't ever be because of the nature of investing creates a lot of greed when things are going great and creates a lot of fear when things are going badly. So we're probably not going to automate this process ever, um, although the robo-advisors are trying to, which I think is kind of cute. That's true. They're going to be really, really good at it right until the market crashes and then people are going to absolutely freak out. (laughs) They're down 40% with their (laughs) robo-advisor. So... um, Let's, let's dive in then today on and finally get around to valuing a business. Okay? Chipotle. Chipotle, which is in the news right now. Um, this is uh, the 3rd of February that we're doing this taping. This will probably come out in a week or so. And um, Chipotle just last night uh, announced that it had dropped its same source store sales 
by 35 percent. Mm-hmm. It's unprecedented in, in, in the history of um, this sort of a product, a little restaurant like this, to have same source sales fall off the cliff like that. Did you say same source sales? Same store sales. Same store sales. Right. So if the store was doing $1,000 in business per day, got it. It went to $650. So they're measuring it by the store. Right. Not only that, but Chipotle came out and I love the Chipotle CEO. He's not pulling any punches. He came out and said, oh yeah, and we did a survey of our clientele and 65% of them or something said they're seriously thinking of not coming back. Jeez. Right. So there's a big wave out there. And, uh, And Chipotle's stock responded to that news by dropping today. It's down... Went down to as low as 440, and we'll see how it comes out. But it's interesting that it doesn't drop farther, right? And so you have one company that's upgraded it and said, well, this is a great time to get in. Used to be at $720. And a company that would do that is pretty much being driven by one of two things. Either they're valuing the business up around $700 or $800 or $1,000 a share in their valuation analysis, or they're a modern, modern portfolio theory company that basically says, um, that the price of the stock is what it's worth. And they're basically saying that these problems which make it worth 440 are going to go away and it will be worth 750 again in a couple of years. Um, we don't subscribe to that view. We're, we're more in the camp that says that um, companies can be vastly uh, improperly priced because the true value of a business, and this is really important, the value of a business is the cash flow that it's going to get put in your pocket over time. Okay. That's what it's worth. And, you know, the, and when you say we, you mean you, not me, just to be clear. I'm still trying to figure this out. Okay, so the, the, what, it, what Chip, Chipotle Mexican Grill is worth to me is the total amount of money that I'm going to get out of that business into my pocket Along with, I have to say, this subjective view of the value of that business in the world. The goodwill. Which is, well, it's more like my values and whether I love the business. Oh, I see what you're saying. So I I feel like a business has an obligation to... You mean it has some value to you to to support it. To be in it, to support it. Like, I don't want to support something I don't think is doing good in the world, right? So Chipotle does a lot of good in the world, I think. I mean, they hire a lot of people. They produce a really, really good product that I like to eat. They do it at a very, very good price. So if people are struggling to make ends meet, you know, you can eat a burrito dinner at Chipotle once a day and you're pretty well filled up. It's a pretty good deal. Um, it is a lot of food. Oh, yeah, for real. <laughs> and it's it's promoting um, this concept of ethically raised animals. And, you know, I'm big on that for, for real. So um, I like the company a lot and I want to see it in the world. So that's important to me. And then I also want to be able to buy it at a really good price. So we have a basic kind of matrix of things we want to look at to determine the value of a business. And, and I, I'm going to go through it with you guys now. And this Wait, is going to be so some the numbers. The things you just said were quali- qualitative, sort of touchy-feely kinds of things. Subjective stuff. Subjective stuff. Which is whether I like it or not. And then you just said something about valuing the business, which which I think of as a quantitative numbers-based, I'm going to end up with a number that I should buy this company at that is in dollars. Right. So let's don't so let's don't confuse the two. That's what I'm asking. Is the va- when you say the value of the business, does it encompass both of those sections? No. Okay. 
So I, I'm here's kind of where I would put it. I would say that um, I'm going to put my values into my money. I'm going to vote my money for what I want to see in the world. But I'm not going to add to the value, the intrinsic value of the business, because I happen to want to see it in the world. Mm-hmm. It's going to have an intrinsic value based on my view of what that cash flow is going to look like. Not that I think it's a great company that should exist and I'm going to pay more for it. So the I think it's a great company, I think it should exist acts as a disqualifier. Exactly. In the sense of the opposite. You, you got to jump over <laughs> you, that You bar. invert it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You... If, it, if I think it's a terrible company and should not exist, then I'm not going to buy it no matter what the price, right, no uh, matter what the value no is. No matter what the value price relationship is. I don't want to buy it. I don't want to support it in any way. And this, of course, is where I can get into a, a, a long discussion with friends like Jim Kramer, who uh, really strongly believes that there's no place in money management for this sort of view that I have. Like he's criticizing Bill Ackman, who's a very good hedge fund manager, for taking a moral point of view on Herbalife, say. Okay. Um, and, and, and basically Ackman is um, short the company because he thinks it's a bad company. Not, not, not bad in the sense of business, bad in the sense of fraudulent. So he's taking a position that Herbalife is going to go down. That it's going to go down and it should be helped along <laughs> because it's evil. Okay. Right. And, and so this concept of morality may or may not come into the, into the money world based on your own point of view about this. For Kramer, it doesn't. For me, it does. And I think, you know, a lot of people are kind of nervous about bringing morality into the money world because it, it creates a, a bunch of subjectivity around a business. You know, you think it's a great moral company. I think it's a terrible... Like Warren Buffett loves Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And I think those guys are selling something that not doesn't just make people happy. It makes them obese and makes them sick. And the rest of us get to pay for that. Now, I'm I'm not a Bernie Sanders fan. I when, don't think we should regulate that. When was the last time you had a Coke? It's Tell been the truth. Two years. Stop it. It yeah. has not. Yeah. You have not had a real Coke in two years? Two years. What? When, yeah, I mean... I don't even believe that. Yeah, pretty good, huh? I got off it. This from a guy who used to go to McDonald's on purpose... Yes. ...in order to get only a Coke. Yes. Because they mixed only it McDonald's the best. Coke. Only McDonald's yeah, Coke. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was addicted to Coca-Cola from my mom and dad working at Dairy Queen, your grandmother and grandfather, working at Dairy Queen... And, you know, Dilly Bars and Cokes were sort of free. You could go in there and get one from, from your folks. Mm-hmm. And um, I've always had Cokes. And so, you know, I'm a, l- a little bit like Warren Buffett in that regard. But then I started to realize that this sugar that was coming through my nervous system was having a big impact on me staying fit. Mm. And that fitness was important to me. So I started reading a lot about it. And I found out that there's a point of view... That's, I don't know if it's all that backed up scientifically or not, but it's a point of view that says that if you put sugar through your nervous system, you uh, your body responds by changing the way it handles glucose. And and it makes it turns it into fat if you have a lot of sugar going through your system. And if you don't have that sugar, it just spits it out. And I tried it, and I gotta say, it's true. From from my anecdotal experience, if you stop putting sugar in your nervous system, 
fat drops off your body. So here's what I hear you saying. In your daily life, you have chosen to stop eating refined sugar, including Cokes. Yep. Therefore, you are buying different items at the grocery store. Yep. You're buying different items when you go to restaurants, and you're probably choosing different restaurants and choosing different kinds of grocery stores because you want to choose the ones that don't have those refined sugar products. Yes. In your own life day to day. Yes. Therefore, you want to reflect that in your investing decisions rather than being, I'll say it, somewhat hypocritical and buying Coca-Cola, for example, as an investment just because you think it's a good pro- a good company and will make you money. Or I should say it's a company that will make you money. Yes. Not that it's a good company. Yes. Um, That's right. Which is, which is diametrically opposed to how you would actually live your life. Right. And I would be hypocritical. In other I, words, I do think that's hypocritical for people to do that. Yeah. I mean, Buffett's not being hypocritical. He, he was saying, he had his meeting last year. Somebody asked him about, why are you buying Coke? Because it's becoming more widely thought that this creates obesity and childhood obesity and diabetes is being driven by Americans' consumption of the sugar content. And Buffett said, well, Coke makes me happy. I like it. Yeah. And, and he says, I, I went to Whole Foods, and I didn't see anybody smiling. <laughs> <laughs> well, he went to the wrong Whole Foods. <laughs> I know. I love Whole Foods. So, yeah, I mean, this my choices about my, my body, what I'm putting in my body, my health, all of those things are informing my purchasing decisions. So why wouldn't they inform, why wouldn't they change my investing decisions along with that? Yeah, I mean, this is something, like, I think about constantly and everybody I know thinks about constantly. Like, we all try to, like, buy local and support local businesses and support businesses that do good things in the world, like helping out women who are starting micro-businesses in wherever. Yeah. You know? Like, if I have a choice between something that helps somebody and something that doesn't help somebody and it's pretty much the same product, I'm going to pick the one that helps somebody. Yeah. Um, I'm also trying to choose healthy, well-sourced, antibiotic-free items to actually put into my body. Yeah, me too. And I go to Whole Foods because it's just easier to buy them there, frankly, because I know they've already done the choosing for me. Yeah. And I know I'm paying a premium for that, but it's helpful because I don't have to read every single label every single time. Same with Trader Joe's. I love Trader Joe's. So this is how I behave in day-to-day life. Your decision to go to Trader Joe's and Whole Foods along with a lot of other people who are thinking the way you're thinking and the way I'm thinking, is having an enormous influence on the grocery store business. Oh, my God. No kidding. Those guys are going natural organic. Bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Absolutely. I mean, you used to not be able to get organic stuff at a big chain grocery store. I remember those days really well because... My mom would drag us to the organic grocery store, <laughs> which was really annoying. <laughs> and then they started having organic stuff at, you know, the big Vons and Publix and whatevers. And um, and and it made things so much easier because yeah. you could go buy all the stuff you needed and still get organic. Yeah. And that 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 kind of moral decision making is going to change the world. It's going to change companies. The fact that more and more of these companies are demanding uh, you know, requirements on how farmers are growing uh, crops and cattle and, and animals having a big impact out there. And it's going to have more and more an impact as we go. And I think that what you might want to extrapolate from that is if that's having such a big impact, what would happen if all of those people, all of your friends, all of my friends who are doing these kinds of 
purchase decisions also made those same decisions in terms of their investment. Instead of giving their money to some fund manager or sticking it in an index, which buys all these companies that they don't like, what if they made those decisions consciously about what they wanted to own with their retirement money? Do you realize 85% of the money in these companies is driven by little guy money. It's all our money put into 401ks, into your retirement plans, IRAs, and so on. That money is going out there, and it is what's holding up the ability of companies like Coca-Cola to keep doing business. If everybody said, oh, the heck with it, I'm not going to be involved with Coke if they're going to continue this marketing campaign, or Altria, if they're going to continue this campaign to get people smoking, I'm not going to be part of that investment. Um, those guys would go under, you know, they would be gone. They Well, they wouldn't be gone because what they'd do is they would change their entire direction of the company because they would realize that their stock is not being supported by people. It would change the world. I mean, it would just change the world overnight. It, yeah, I mean, we can already see it, like... Speaking of Coca-Cola, they bought Honest Tea, which I really like because they have the lemonade iced tea mixed one, which is my favorite. And I was buying that the other day and I was like, oh, I just I wonder like who makes this? And it said, you know, something in like very tiny letters owned by Coca-Cola <laughs> <laughs> because they're clearly trying to diversify their um, offerings for people who are not buying Regular Coke right. or Diet Coke or Sprite or any I mean, other. Coke, Coke in the United States is drinks. dying. Actually, it's going downward in terms mm -hmm. of the the the. It's the company's still doing okay because they're pumping this stuff like crazy overseas into the third world, right? But uh, in the U.S., it's going backwards. And I just think, wow, what a difference it would make if people would realize, for example, all these people who are supporting Bernie Sanders who want to regulate things, right? To have to have the big government guys determine for you what's right and wrong because they know better for you what's right and wrong. So, for example, Bloomberg decided he would try to regulate New York and kick out all the big gulp sodas. Like, you couldn't buy a gigantic soda anymore in New York was his concept. He was going to regulate it and make you do the right thing. And I see where they're coming from because that stuff contributes to diabetes and obesity, which is a huge chunk of what we pay out in healthcare costs. But it's coming out it the wrong way. What we need to do instead of layering on other people's, you know, who are going to tell us what's right and wrong, like some totalitarian government, what we need to do is educate people to vote their morals with their money. Vote your values with your money. Put your money where your mouth is. And if people start to realize, wow, I really think this is a bad idea, enough people say in New York to pass a law that you can't sell Coke, right? If there were that many people who were just changing their investment, those people, the classic hypocrisy, of course, is that those people all own Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> they're the owners of the very company they're trying to regulate out of existence. Well, maybe they're not. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Oh, maybe if they, they're not. If they own an index, they own Coke. If they own a mutual <laughs> fund, they own Coke. Oh, that's an interesting thing you just said. If you own an index, I hadn't thought about that. Oh, yeah. If you, you own an index, you own everything. You own the 500 big companies. I had not... Put that to, I mean, oh, yes, yeah. of course. So all these I people are shifting from mutual funds. Supporting companies that I. You're maybe supporting don't want smoking. Support. You're supporting sugar water. Yep, you're supporting. You know, you're supporting the grocery stores that are just all about you know stick the food out there as cheap as possible. You're supporting Walmart that has destroyed small town life all over America. 
by yeah. eliminating small-town groceries, eliminating small-town hardware stores, eliminating small-town pharmacies, eliminating small-town clothing stores. Walmart destroyed small towns all over the country because, you know, if you get rid of those four stores out of a little town, then you've also lost your insurance agent, you've lost your, you know, the church goes downhill, people have to move away. It's, it's unbelievable what gigantic bigness in the name of prices is doing to the country. So I, these are my values, by the way. Don't get me wrong, you guys. I'm not saying vote my values. I'm not saying join some socially active fund. What I'm saying is be like Warren Buffett and vote for what you believe in. He believes in Coca-Cola and Dairy Queen. Vote for it. I'm, I'm totally okay with that because then we can have a discussion about the merits of your view versus my view, right? We don't, I don't need to go out and get regulators to keep you from going to McDonald's. I don't want yeah. to do that. Well, absolutely. I mean, I am conscious that we're coming at this from a position of great privilege. I mean, we're already talking about investing our extra money in the stock market. So we are already coming from a place of great privilege. And then to be talking about like, you know, choosing my antibiotic free chicken from Whole Foods that costs three times as much as the other kind of chicken at a different grocery store is very privileged. Very good. But... That's where I'm at, frankly. Like, I'm going to be real about it. That's my life. That's your life. We're super lucky to have this kind of kind of choice in our lives. And other people are dealing with other stuff. And, and choosing cheaper chicken might be really important to somebody else's life. And it definitely is really important to a lot of people's lives. Yeah. So I say vote those values. If that's what's going on with you, that's really important. Yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. We're not here to tell you what your values are. We're here to tell you, figure out your values and vote them with your money in, in both ways, where you're spending it and equally important, if not more important, where you're investing it. Because guys, I'm telling you, if you wanted to get rid of smoking in America, you can try to legislate it out of existence, which makes people very angry, right? <laughs> Smokers are paying a huge premium for cigarettes because of Gosh. the attempts to tax them out of existence. I love the no smoking in bars law, though. I just love it. <laughs> My hair used to stink every more, every Saturday morning. <laughs> well, I got to say, I'm, I'm okay with it on a local level. I'm okay with it on a state level because you have the ability yeah, and to are, walk across local, the street. Those are local organizations. You can move, yeah. right? You can vote with your feet and go to, you know, if you don't like socialism, you can leave California, right? If you don't like... Well, one would hope you can leave. But yeah. it's, it's more difficult to move than people who say that kind of thing usually think about. Well, I am one person who finds it extremely easy. Yes, I know I you are. I just pack it up and go. It's like, you know, what's that song? Uh, you know, get on the bus, Gus? Yeah, well, you also work for yourself. So, well, that's come true. on now. That's true. Fair enough. So there are issues. But in, in general, it's much easier to leave a city or a state than it is to leave your country. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. And so when we put things through at the highest level, when we, when we put through regulations and laws at the federal level that apply to everybody in every state, if you don't like them, you're kind of screwed. You, you, there's no other place to go that's experimenting with a different solution. So, for example, if you wanted to be polygamous, presumably you could move to Utah if there weren't some federal law that says for some reason a woman can't have six husbands. You know, I mean, I don't know why you can't have six husbands. Why not? Go have six husbands. 
Utah is the most anti-polygamy state of them all now, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, I think they, that they had their arms twisted a little on <laughs> that one. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> so uh, the point being that we had a system of government at one point in time in this country that was 50 different experiments going on in social living. And I would love to see us bring it back. I mean, why not have your way in some state, which you could probably figure out. Whatever your way is, you could probably get it put together in your state. Um, and rather than imposing it on the entire country. And, and you can see kind of where we are when we're trying to do that. We have a frozen legislature in, in Washington, D.C. that can't get anything done, wow. not because people are, aren't willing to compromise. It's they're not willing to give up their values, and the values are very different across the U.S. Our Congress is frozen because of gerrymandering districts, which has created people voting in representatives from the far side of each side. And yeah. they, those people are never going to get along. Yep. Well, I would just argue that if the Supreme Court would would sort of uphold the Constitution rigorously, okay. Okay. then you would have the you would have a very uh, you'd have a very impotent federal government. It couldn't do a lot of things, and therefore your gerrymandering wouldn't matter particularly because nobody could do anything. So that's the idea. Gerrymandering is unconstitutional also. Well, I'm fine with it. Get rid of it. Get rid of gerrymandering, which is... But I don't want to get into a Supreme Court constitutionalism discussion. Okay, fair enough. We won't go there. Instead, do you know what? Hmm. All that has to happen for us to talk about anything is for us to intend to talk about how to value Chipotle. We do tend to wander off. It's like insane... It I is. think this has happened about six times it's now. It's chronic. It's pathological. And we don't have time to talk about Chipotle in, in detail. All right, then let's take to. one piece of it. Let's take one piece of it and get into it here. Okay? Okay. Good. You have you have a good piece that we can... Yeah. We've yeah. got, we've got uh, let's say, 10 minutes on. Okay, so let's talk about the structure of valuing a business, the, the kind of things you have to think about. And the good news is that... In this concept of thinking about how to value a business, we are going to assume you've already found this business is something you're capable of understanding, let's say Chipotle, and that you believe that it has a strong intrinsic characteristic, that it's the leader of its brand and very entrenched brand. Um, that so you're will saying it has a brand moat. Brand moat, yep. And, um, and third that it has a very strong management team with integrity and talent. Um, we could stipulate that because they've been running the company from, from day one, and it's a phenomenally run company. They're very honest, which you can see in the current crisis. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to stipulate we've got the first three things out of the way, and okay. that Chipotle is a wonderful business. Okay. All right. Now, all we need to know now is what is this wonderful business worth? So we're not going to go back through the wonderful business stuff. What we're going to do is move on to the pieces of things you need to know. Yeah, well, we did this really quickly a few weeks ago, and we came up with, I think, a value of $500 a share, and then you said that we should cut that in half and only buy it if it goes down to 250 Okay, but let's figure out how we got there. Okay. Let's just look at the matrix of things we have to know. So the, the beauty of this first way of looking at the value of a business, there's multiple ways here that will match up. But the first way is simply looking at four numbers. That's all you got to figure out is four numbers. The first one is called the earnings per share, TTM, which stands for 
trailing 12 months. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right? Um, there's some other abbreviations too, but the basic idea is give me the up to the last quarter um, earnings for four quarters worth. Okay, so not their, not their fiscal year, but just the last four quarters of earnings that we have. So that's called uh, TTM EPS or EPS parentheses TTM. Okay, so where would we find that? And there's a bunch of different websites you can go to. Um, you can go to Yahoo. Uh, you can go to Microsoft Money. You can go to places where you pay for it, like Morningstar, um, to Guru Focus. Um, uh, you can go lots of places, and they'll give you TTM EPS. And um, you can go to even our, on our website, ruleoneinvesting.com. You can go there and it... And it comes up and tells you automatically a, a, a what's called a smooth EPS, and that means we mean a slightly adjusted trailing 12 months earnings per share. Why so, is it slightly adjusted? Um, it's just sort of adjusted for if something seems wildly out of skew for the growth of this company over time. We, we sort of make it a, a computer adjustment because you don't want to base your earnings per share number on the last year's earnings, if it has suddenly leapt up by, you know, 100% higher than the previous year, because there might be something in there you, you didn't realize was in there. Like maybe they sold part of the business or something. Right. Oh, okay. So you're saying like somehow a computer looks back at the last three years? Yeah, and we if, go back If the years. most recent year is wildly different than the others. Then it skews it. Then, then, it, then, it, then adjusts it sort of adjusts it. it. Yeah, okay. it sort of adjusts it. That makes sense. Yeah. And you know, you know, the opposite can happen too. That the last year was just an insanely bad year, and it isn't likely to be. You know, if you drew a line, I mean, there's no way for a computer to say, "Oh, well, that's insanely unlikely to happen again." Right. So, so <laughs> that is a judgment call. Okay. Right. <laughs> You'd have to understand the business. So in this case, um, with Chipotle, we're coming up with a number of fifteen dollars and thirty-seven cents. Now, this may not contain yesterday's number okay but you'll get the idea because they just announced their last quarter yesterday okay so we're going to use fifteen dollars and 37 cents and the idea is just to get the last four quarters and lots of websites will give that to you you can google ttm eps cmg which is chipotle mexican grill symbol and you'd probably get something for that in fact let me try that right now we're going to google ttm eps CMG, and it comes up on Y Charts, which is a good website, and tells you $15.09. Okay. So there you go. Why would that be any different than your number? I'm not sure our number has the last quarter in it, because it just happened yesterday. Oh, so this, this one's Our supplier may not have fed it in yeah, quickly yeah. enough yeah. Uh, to give us the absolute last one. And I see that... Um, here they have the diluted range like this. So this is keeping track pretty well. This is as of December 31st, so that's really up to date. Ours is probably back one or something. Okay. So anyway, there may be a difference so from one website to another. So it might be worth it to Google it anyway, sure, even, if, you're, it even anyway. if you have a website you like, just sure. to see if there's any disparities. A different one, right, exactly. Okay, cool. Okay. So now we've got, in fact, let's just use Y charts. We'll change it to 1509 just for the heck of it since that seems pretty up-to-date. Okay, so that is a given. So the first thing you're looking for is TTM EPS. That's a given number. The second number you're looking for 
is the growth rate of earnings per share. So the growth rate of earnings per share is the rate that earnings are increasing or you know, hopefully increasing, or we're not even gonna be looking at this thing, that are increasing over time. And what I teach is that you should look at this over multiple different time periods. Um, and we teach to look at a 10-year growth rate and a seven-year growth rate and a five-year growth rate and a three-year growth rate and see if there's some vast difference between these. Like, is it decreasing from what it's been over a 10-year average to the last three years? Is it really going down? Or is it pretty much the same? So um, now, if you, need to, if you need to get the the earnings per share sort of year by year, the best thing to do is to go to a website that'll give you 10 years of data or more. Okay. And unfortunately, to my knowledge, there are no websites that produce 10 years of data absolutely free. No. You can just get it. Okay. Right? So if you have a broker or something you're using to actually do your trades, will they have that kind of Almost none of them have 10 like years. Like e-trades of data. or something? Almost none of them. Okay. Uh, um, they just don't want to pay for it. And by the way, most people who are investing are modern portfolio investors, modern portfolio theory investors who don't look at the real value. They're just looking at the current price. That's the value. So there's not very many of us out here doing this work. As a result, not there's no places really where you can go to get it for free because there's not that many users. Hmm. So, you know, welcome to the world of value investing. It's a little bit different world. Hmm. All right, so we're going to have to go find this 10-year of data someplace. And Morningstar carries 10 years of data. They charge like 10 bucks a month. Um, oh, I thought, okay, I thought you were going to say it was really expensive. That's no, 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 it's not bad. It's not bad at all. Um, many different sites have 10 years of data. Guru Focus has 15 years of data, but they're about 30 bucks a month or 40 bucks a month. So you can get it. It's not super cheap. Mm -hmm. um, you can get it on our website as well. And we're trying to get it to where we can do all that for free. We're not there yet. Um, well, you probably have to pay somebody to get that we info. We indeed do have to pay somebody to get that info. But um, we're working on it so that we can get this out to the people and let them be able to take <laughs> advantage of this stuff. So um, what the website does is it tells you, what our website does is it kind of goes through those numbers and presents 10 years, seven years, five years, and three-year growth rates for earnings per share. And we do it automatically. If you don't have a website that does it automatically, you gotta get an Excel spreadsheet and you've gotta do a formula. And what I'm gonna recommend is if you don't know what those formulas are, you should go buy my book, Rule number one, where I lay out the formulas in total detail on how you set up an Excel spreadsheet. Gosh, if only there were a book that just told you exactly what to do. Oh, wait. And there is one. There is one out there. Yay. <laughs> is it available on Amazon? Well, I, go get it at the library. It's available at the library for free. All right. And, and I You're think not you, supposed to tell people that. It's okay. If you, Come on, guys. Just buy it on Amazon. It'll be at your house in two days. Yeah, it will. And I think it's like $9 on Amazon or something like that. <laughs> the, the, for the price of a Dad month. Dad needs antibiotic-free chicken. So please buy his book. So please I buy my book. I need him to be healthy. <laughs> so what it does is it presents a, a formula for figuring out these growth rates. And I'll tell you roughly what uh, those growth rates should be if you figure them out properly, because our website does it automatically. For Chipotle Mexican Grill, the earnings per share growth rate for 10 years on average is 50% per year. 
Come on, that's crazy. Uh, there it is. There's the real number. It starts at four dollars and forty cents, and as of two thousand fifteen. It's probably up to about 60-something, 70-something. I'm looking down at your numbers here on your website, Mm -hmm. and the first 2005 year... I was looking at book value. ...is 496% growth rate. Pretty good. It went from 24 cents in 2004 to $1.43. And then after that, it goes to negative 10%, and then it has 67%, and then this is year by year... To 10%, this is like all over the place. And then 67% in 2009, right. 43% in 2010, 20% in 2011, 28% in 2012, 20% in 2013, 35% in 2014. Right on. So, so I think it's a little skewed it's by skewed. this 495% exactly. number in 2005. Exactly. Which is why we put the numbers in day by day, or year by year as well. So you can see it's skewed because it started off at 24 cents and went all the way up to 1509 or something. And what we want to look at and see is, well, where are we now? I mean, what is it reasonably doing along here? And we can see that it's come down quite a lot from being at 67% in 2009 to 43 to 20, 28, 20, 35. So we're somewhere in here in this range of 20 to 35%. For earnings in the last three years. Yeah, in the last three or four years. And our website says the three-year average is 27%. Okay. All right. Now, if that's all we had to do, we'd be done right there. We could put in, you know, whatever we wanted to use there. 27% is historically probably the low end of the range. But we're not quite done. What we have to do is remember that we're not able to value a business based on a growth rate that's historical. If we could do that, then this would be so much easier. We could just look out the back window of the car, look at what the road looks like, and that's just how we'll drive the car, Mm -hmm. as if the road in front of us looks exactly like the road behind. But the road can change in front of us, Mm -hmm. okay? And we can't see it because we're in the fog in the front. It's only clear out the back. So what we have to understand is if we used a growth rate of 27%, what would that mean in terms of the size of this business over the next 10 years or so. And so. Oh, and this is what you were saying about how McDonald's has so many more stores and yeah. Chipotle is not going to reach that level of McDonald's. Because McDonald's is a small little because store. Because it's a different kind of restaurant. Yeah, it's a little different kind of restaurant. I'm not saying they can't do it for sure, but Chipotle doesn't that. use drive throughs They don't do drive throughs right. It's a completely different kind it's of a different model. restaurant. Yeah. And that doesn't mean they can't shift to it. If, if it became, you know, so popular that everybody wanted a Chipotle on every corner like a McDonald's, they may go for that and do a standalone building. But right now, they don't do standalones. Right. It would affect their pricing dramatically, right? They're yeah. just leasing a small yeah. space. So I'm not sure that that would be something they end up doing. But what I wanted to point out here, though, is you take the growth rate that you're looking at there on earnings and just do a mind game with it. If, in fact, this were to grow like that for the next 10 years or, let's say, 15 years, um, how many stores would they have to have? And since you can look up on their 10K, and we'll talk about this more later, it's part of really really understanding the business and whether it has a intrinsic moat. That's just their annual report, the 10K. Yeah, their annual report. Let's say they've got 2,000 stores and you're growing at 27%. What that means is you're going to double the number of stores you have every three years. Okay, 
So that would be mean that they've got 4,000 stores in three years, 8,000 stores in six years, 16,000 stores in nine years. Let's take it out to 15 years. 32,000 stores in 12 years and 64,000 stores in 15 years. So if we were to use 27% as a, a number for growing the business, we would have to be in the ballpark of understanding that Chipotle might have to have 64,000 stores. That seems crazy. Well, McDonald's has like 45,000. Yeah, okay. And they're bigger than anybody. <laughs> yeah. All right, and they're all over the world. So that starts to look like a lot. Now, part of this growth, we probably wouldn't have to get clear to 64,000 because part of the growth rate could be inflation. Hmm. And part of the growth rate could be each store does better each year. They grow the internal sales of the stores. Could it include new, um, I don't know what to call it, like new branded stores, like stores that are not, restaurants that are not Chipotle? Yeah. But owned by Chipotle. Right, it could. And it's important to know when you read the 10K, you'll see that Chipotle has opened up a pizza store. They did not. Okay, so what they did is they bought Pizzeria Locale. Yes. Which is like massively exciting and crazy because Pizzeria Locale is a fantastic restaurant in Boulder. And it's actually a, a, a really like nice sit down restaurant, but they invented this sort. It's it's sort of like a Neapolitan pizza place, and they invented a concept when they opened one in Denver that was kind of a fast casual Chipotle style version of the one in Boulder. And I had no idea that they had sold this concept to Chipotle until I was reading the 10K last week. And it said they own Pizzeria Locale. And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> it's so weird. Um, everybody should go to the one in Boulder. It's fantastic. I haven't been to the one in Denver, uh, but I've heard it's good. Well, this is absolutely the case that they could expand their sort of natural, you know, or the way they serve or something into other food types and continue to grow massively. So, you know, there'd probably be somebody that would argue that they could maybe do this level of growth. I don't know. But we don't make money investing being super optimistic, right? Being super optimistic is kind of counter to our investment strategy. You know, while I love this secret and my friends, you know, are all doing, you know, John Asaroff and John Heglin and Marcy Shymoff and all these guys, these are all friends of mine. I'm totally into the secret. Great. But being, you know, trying to wish a company into a future isn't a great way to invest. You have to really be kind of conservative about the way you approach this. You don't want to be stupidly conservative, but you want to be kind of conservative. Okay. And you want to basically say, you know, what can they reasonably expect them to do? So what number would you pick out of these options? Three years growth rate is 27.7%. The one-year growth rate is 35.6%. The five-year growth rate is 29.2%. What would you pick? Well, I'm going to throw away any one-year growth rate, low or high, because it doesn't really give us much of a model. Um, Charlie likes three years to five years minimum, um, and when he's looking at this stuff, in order to get a view, you know, of where you're at. So I can see that it's coming down. It's 31 on seven years, 29 on five, 27 on three. Well, this and one I'm year willing to guess that this E. coli situation is slowing down their growth because and they're going to put all their resources into fixing that and sure. shoring up the stores they already have. And it's have. going to cost them more always in the long run to fix this problem, right? In other words, their costs just went up permanently mm-hmm. in some kind of way to set a new standard for what health safety is going mm-hmm. to be in this kind of restaurant. 
Um, so we got to argue that, you know, this is definitely going down. Okay. Definitely so give us down. your number and we're going to close with this number. Okay. And we're going to come back next time and continue how to value Chipotle. Okay. So before I give you my number, I want to tell you that this is earnings per share growth rate is going to be one of four numbers of growth rates that I'm going to look at before I give you my number. I'm going to look at three other a, growth rates. But you have to pick a... No, I'm not saying the, the valuation number. I'm saying your earnings per share growth rate number. That is the valuation number. And I'm going to get to it by looking at sales growth rate, cash growth rate, and book value growth rate. And I'm, in fact, probably going to lean heavier on the growth rate of book value in the company than even the earnings per share growth rate. I'm so confused. Why are we even talking about it if you're not going to choose one of these numbers? Well, I'm going to take a look at all four of these, and then I'm going to find what I think is the best fit for a number overall. Okay, so on my paper here, I have one, EPS, TTM, $15.37. Two, growth rate of EPS. What am I going to write down next to growth rate of EPS? You're going to write down. Am I going to write nothing down? Is that what you're saying? You're going to write nothing down yet because we're going to cover this next time. Oh. We're going to dive into the other three growth rates. So these four growth rates we're going to look at together, and we're going to try to see if we can figure out What's, what do they all have in common at a kind of conservative level? Because let me give you an example. If we put 27% as the growth rate for earnings per share, because that's what earnings per share has been doing, mm-hmm. what if sales were only growing at 8%? What we would notice is that, or what we would know from being around business world for a while, is that you probably can't continue growing your earnings at 27% if your sales are only growing at 8%. Because pretty soon you can't keep fixing something cleverly unless your revenues are coming in higher and higher. You're going to have to stop your growth rate of earnings. In other words, you you can't really ultimately grow your earnings faster than you're growing your sales. Okay. Got it. That makes sense? Sure. Yeah, sure. Okay. And also we would want to know how's book value doing because if you're growing your earnings really good and you're growing your sales really good, but none of it's getting to the bottom line of your the equity of the company. It's all being spent on capital expenses to keep the growth going. Then we've got to question whether this business is really actually producing anything for the owners. So equity growth rate or book value growth rate is also critically important. And then finally, you know, we, we, we know we're probably not going to grow earnings faster than sales. We know we want earnings growth to end up down in, in our pocket which is equity. But the way that's got to translate is through cash. And cash is often the first indicator of problems in a company's uh, business plan. And so if its growth rate is slowing down radically, we'd want to know that because it probably means that there's a problem going on and we have to dig out what it is. So all four of these put together are what we're going to have to learn. So this is a little bit of, uh-oh, we're going to have to learn something about these four numbers before we can make any kind of coherent idea about the future of this company. Okay. Sigh. Yeah, I was waiting for the number, but this is much more complicated than I thought it was going to be. It is more complicated than you thought. We can't just go on a number. Okay. Okay. But it's not infinitely complicated. It's just four numbers. Yes. It's four numbers, not one. 
Yes. Okay, so you're going to learn to speak the foreign language a little bit. And you thought, gosh, I was only going to have to learn a few sentences to travel. And you realize now you're going to have to memorize some things about this language. So we're going to show you what you have to memorize. But, you know, high school kids can do this. They come to our class and they do this real easily. Oh, really? High school? Oh, great. That made me feel really good. <laughs> Thanks for that. You're, you're very bright. You're a lawyer. You can do a number. You're very bright. You're very bright. <laughs> Don't worry at all. You I'll, can handle four numbers. I'll get numbers. you through this. Yeah, I you can see a little bit like why I've been procrastinating. <laughs> I, it, it, this is this is a little bit hard for a lot of people. So if you feel well, like me, oh I don't me, want to learn this, let you're me not just alone. tell you why it's hard because you're not just giving information that you learn. You're saying that you have to take these numbers and then make a judgment call. Yeah, that's intimidating to me. Yeah, it is. I understand. So let's wrap up there. That we're going to have to look at these numbers, and then oh dear. Oh dear, we are going to have to make a judgment call based not only on the history of the company, which are these four numbers, but what we see vaguely out through the fog in the front window. Okay. All right. So thanks everybody. Here we go. Until Til next, next time. week. Time to go play. <laughs> see you guys. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.